Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today for Barry Dunn's first ever In the Know podcast. This is a podcast series focused on the financial services industry, current trends, as well as hot topics. My name is David Stone. I'm a manager in Barry Dunn's financial services practice group. And I've been with the firm for approximately uh, six years. I focus on audits of financial institutions ranging in size and complexity. And I'm joined today by Susan Weber. Susan, welcome. Uh, can you give our audience a brief introduction? Sure. Hi, David, and thanks for having me. As David mentioned, I'm Susan Weber, a senior manager in Barry Dunn's Financial Services Practice Group. So David and I get to work together every day, which is phenomenal. After 26 years in public banking, which included leading and managing a CECL adoption in 2020, I joined Barry Dunn about a year ago to help clients tackle a variety of credit risk management and related challenges. And so that's what I've been spending my time doing in the last year. Great. Thank you, Susan. And so happy to have you here today. And uh, so to kick us off, what should our listeners be homing in on? Well, you know, David, I can't let a day go by that I'm not talking or thinking about CECL. So I'm going to start there. Uh, with most of our banks adopting CECL 1123, I've spent a lot of time performing model validations, readiness or gap assessments, and really advising on model risk management policies and procedures. Um, we're seeing an awful lot of loss rate methods like WARM being used in this wave of adopters, and maybe a 50-50 or 60-40 split of adopters using actual models developed by vendors versus more of a tool that simply collects and organizes data, maybe does some basic loss rate calculation from either the bank's data or call report data. Sure, sure. So from this work, Susan, are there any big takeaways, any concerns or even success stories? Oh boy, so many things come to mind, but um, probably the biggest one is we're seeing a lot of banks struggling to maintain their current reserve levels upon CECL adoption. So in other words, they face uh, strong pressure to decrease their reserves uh, upon adoption. And in part, I think this is because many banks increased reserves during the pandemic, but haven't really been disciplined in releasing them or haven't felt the need yet to release them. That's probably a much better word than disciplined. I don't mean that uh, any disrespect there. There's been so much uncertainty right? Mm, yep. And and so much weirdness in what's been going on. Um, but, you know, it, we are almost three years later and we just haven't seen the asset quality degradation that uh, was sort of expected early on. And there's a really great graph in our quarter two quarterly banking profile summary that really illustrates this. It's the one, David, you may be thinking about it too, that um, shows that reserve coverage over non-current loans over time. And in that graph, and I would encourage people to go and pull it and look at it, um, it's about midway through the report, you can see a pretty dramatic increase from 2019 to present for banks, especially in that 100 million to 1 billion and then 1 billion to 10 billion space. And for all others, that pandemic increase has come down. Um, and and this uh, pressure on reserves really was anticipated and predicted by uh, several organizations. Um, maybe people have forgotten about it, but TREPP, T-R-E-P-P being one of them, they actually predicted this pressure would happen based on their analysis at the end of 2019. Um, for those listeners who don't know, TREP is the industry's largest uh, commercially available database of securitized mortgages. Uh, they do a lot with uh, commercial mortgages. And they've been 
very actively using their data to help model and understand CECL's impacts. And based on 2019 data, they predicted back then that in general, small banks would probably experience as much as a 16% decrease upon adoption. And I would say that based on the large increases we've seen in reserves, especially among these banks through the pandemic, I would expect that pressure and that percentage decrease to be much, much bigger. Mm, yeah, great point, Susan. And any others worth mentioning? Well, I, I guess um, I, I guess yes. With few exceptions, uh, we've seen most institutions are struggling to document their model choices, including policies, procedures, and governance. Their controls that tends to be uh, lagging. It was in the first wave too. Uh, we've also seen instances in which some institutions have not yet fully addressed two new key aspects of of the standard, and that is forecast and reversion. So lots of focus on progressing those in these last two months before adoption. And just a quick reminder that um, these institutions will close out their books 1231-22 on the ALLL, the incurred model, and then effective January, um, they need to CECLize that number and that difference in, in amounts will be the transition impact. That will affect capital, right? And then from there, uh, the CECL reserve that banks run as of 331-23 is back to the P&L impact that banks are used to. So just a little bit of clarification there for those that may still need to think through that piece. Yeah, thank you, Susan. And that's that's a great clarification right there. You know, that the difference between that day one impact being through equity and then that Q1 impact then starting to run through the P&L as we've uh, come accustomed to seeing. So thanks for the latest and greatest on Cecil, Susan. <laughs> great, great to hear from you on that. Aspect. Great. Well, David, I'm really excited to hear something from you on the economic perspective, because I know you've been at several conferences later and you do a, an awful lot of research in that. So what can you tell us from an economic perspective? Sure, sure. So, of course, the big news has been the rate hikes throughout this year. So the Fed has already increased rates by 300 basis points during 22 um, and further increases are expected as the Fed tries to slow inflation. So rising rates, they're usually seen as a positive for financial institutions. And through quarter two, um, net interest income had increased 10% year over year. And, and more than two thirds of community banks actually reported an increase in net interest income uh, from quarter two, 2021. Um, wow. so, so all positive things, you know, for the uh, financial services industry. However, the rising rate environment has also had a significant impact on the bond market, as we're all well aware. And many financial institutions hold you know, mortgage-backed securities, collateralized mortgage obligations, uh, all of which are usually held as available for sale securities on the balance sheet. And that available for sale designation requires these investments to be marked to market with any unrealized gains, losses, uh, recorded in other comprehensive income. So quarter two unrealized losses were record setting um, and Q3 unrealized losses are expected to be even greater. And this is all a result, these unrealized losses are, are all a result of, you know, those rising interest rates, um, making existing bonds less attractive. So why does all this matter, David? What, what's sort of the possible outcomes or impacts of that? 
Yeah, so many institutions have elected to add back investment gains losses in their regulatory capital ratios. So these significant losses don't have an impact uh, at all on regulatory capital compliance, but it does have an impact on your gap capital, so your book capital. Um, And it could actually have implications on the ability to borrow. So for instance, uh, the FHLB, they can't lend additional funds to a bank that has a negative tangible equity. So this is something that institutions will need to closely monitor, um, you know, especially as uh, deposit growth continues to be outpaced by loan demand. You know, you, you got to look at equity as well as liquidity concerns. Well, that's really good to know. And, you know, really what a change from only a year ago where many institutions were sort of flush with cash and liquidity. Yeah, exactly. And that's really where this started. You know, institutions had excess liquidity that was barely earning anything with interest rates so low. So many institutions tried to extend the duration of this excess liquidity and thus their return uh, by purchasing investments. Well, that's that's really great to hear that um, that conversation and kind of the things to be watching and looking out for. Um, but I can't help myself as a credit risk person. I have to ask, are there anything that you're seeing in terms of borrower capacity to repay, um, you know, with some of the unknowns and stresses in the future? I guess I'm I'm really wondering about delinquency trends. What, how are they looking? Sure. Yeah. Very characteristic of you, Susan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So so delinquency trends, they continue to be at record lows. Um, And you mentioned the coverage ratio earlier, Susan, you know, uh, and and just to to recap, this is the allowance as a percentage of non-current loans. This was at a record high as of 630 at 245%. and yeah, so and, that's you know, crazy. It, it, it is. It is crazy. It, it, Very it is high. Crazy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, on, on the flip side, you know, according to the October Beige Book for Boston, um, you know, employment increased modestly since the Beige Book's last issue in September. Uh, however, vacancy rates, you know, for office space remain high um, in some contacts in the Boston district expect property valuations for commercial real estate to actually fall in the coming months, um, possibly steeply. You know, on the residential side, buyer demand has started to cool, uh, which has shifted that power to buyers. However, prices do remain elevated and overall recession fears continue to grow. So, you know, although delinquency trends remain low, uh, as we all know, this is a lagging indicator. And as indicated by the latest Beige Book, there is still a lot of economic uncertainty. Um, and I would even say economic unrest that appears to be increasing. So I, I, I think it's important to qualify any discussion of delinquency trends um, you know, with, with some forward-looking information or, or more current information you know, when chatting with boards and audit committees. Sure. And I think this is one area um, that is really important as people are thinking about their CECL implementations when they're thinking about a loss rate method, like a warm method, and especially when they may be supplementing some of their own information with peer data and peer loss rates, which, uh, you know, especially in a situation where those peers tend higher uh, than they do, to make sure that they're not double counting. Uh, We've seen situations in which people are using sort of recessionary 
contemporary time periods to inform their historical of historical loss to inform their future. And typically at those times of high historical losses, we would also expect to see higher past dues, higher crit class, you know, higher uh, substandard loans. And so the argument would be that you've already got that built in, right? So being very careful not to layer in the same risk over and over and over in quantitative and qualitative components. There's a, a lot to be thought through um, as people are kind of thinking about this environment we're going into. So see, my mind always goes back to Cecil. <laughs> so let's quickly change gears and talk about other accounting standards. What, what other things are you seeing on that front, David? Well, as we've already discussed, uh, it's full steam ahead on Cecil. Otherwise, it's been barely quiet on the accounting standards side of the house. I, I, I don't want to say that too loudly, um, <laughs> but <laughs> there are a couple of notable projects, though, that the FASB has in the works um, that are worth mentioning. Uh, one that the FASB is working on is an expansion of the proportional amortization method. Um, and, you know, Tyler Waldrop, uh, principal in our group, gave a great update on on this proposal uh, a couple weeks ago during our Barry Dunn mm -hmm. Stiefel event. But, you know, I think it's worth recapping here um, that, you know, this uh, the proportional amortization method is currently only allowable for low income housing tax credits. So that's a very narrow scope. And the FASB is looking to expand this accounting treatment to other types of income tax credits. So, you know, why why does this matter? You know, why why would you care for an expansion in scope? Well, this method, the proportional amortization method, is seen as beneficial um, really because it allows the cost basis amortization as well as the income tax credit piece to be presented net in the income tax expense line item. So it's really just a better representation of the investment. Great. So Is there an, anything else on that front? Yeah. So so just one other project that I'll mention that the FASB is working on is additional guidance on common control leases. So, um, you know, there is a lease standard that's out there that's currently being adopted that will bring operating leases onto the balance sheet. Um, and this you know, may not be a significant topic for financial institutions, uh, but it's likely a significant topic for some of your commercial borrowers. There's been a Great. lot of questions. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of questions on how common control leases should be treated under that new uh, lease accounting standard. So uh, this additional guidance from the FASB will will hopefully provide some more clarification on how common control leases should be treated under this new lease standard. So it's uh, it's much anticipated and I'm, the FASB hopes to issue an exposure draft shortly. And David, if there are any questions from uh, those that are listening, is there a way that they could uh, send those questions in to you? What would you, what would you advise there? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, certainly reach out to myself or Susan directly, or, or we also have a great feature um, on our website called Ask the Advisor. Um, so if you go on our page, you can click a link, fill out a quick form, um, and then, you know, we'll have it and, and certainly get back to you. 
Well, and we've we've had um, several requests come through that, and uh, not that we want to necessarily uh, commit to this each and every time because some of the questions require a lot of research, but we've got a good track record of getting back to people within 24 hours, which I think is great. Um, so, David, if there's one thing I've learned in 26 years, there is never a dull moment in banking. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's a great way to sum this uh, podcast up, Susan. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Susan. And, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, we've covered a lot of content today in, in our very first In the Know podcast. And, and as you mentioned, Susan, certainly if there's any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to Susan, myself, um, or utilize that Ask the Advisor feature on our website. And uh, we'll hope you tune in to our next in the know podcast thank you